All right, we're going to ask Mark and Greg if they would come up here, and we're going to dig into this Q&A time. Uh, we've got some great questions, great questions that you've written in. Uh, as usual with these, we have way more questions than we could possibly use. Um, but I thought we'd start out by just talking about Romans a bit. I think we can get to Romans 9 uh, with a couple questions there. But anything you guys want to talk about as far as the structure of Romans? We, we've talked about that a few different times in different ways. And Greg, I think you today gave us the, the biggest macro of that, that. There are three sections, chapters 1 to 8, then 9 through 11, then 12 and following. Anything more you want to say about structure that would help someone read through the book of Romans with understanding? One through eight's a big section. Can you maybe yeah. break that up a little bit for us? Yeah, I think, I think one of the most interesting things about it is that uh, if, you, uh, if you know the, the, the sort of outline of the, the gospel of Jesus that people have used before, including me in the book, What is the Gospel? God, man, Christ response. I think Paul follows that exactly throughout the first six chapters or so of the book. And it, it's really amazing. He starts out with, you know, the, the wrath of God is being revealed against the sin of mankind. So there's, there's God, there's a God in heaven to whom we are accountable. It's his wrath that causes this great problem that we have. Man, for chapters one and two, he's talking about how human beings, first Gentiles, then Jews, are under the wrath of God and deserving of it. And then Christ in chapter three, and then the response of faith and repentance, first in four, and then moving on into six, five and six. So I think it's just amazing how, you know, that... That little outline of the gospel that you've heard a lot of people use, God, man, Christ response is not artificial. It's, it, it actually comes right out of the text. So I think that's really important to see. Okay. Mark, anything you want to say about the structure of the book of Romans? What's chapter 12? What's chapter 12 and following doing? Why is that a unit that's separate from, say, 9 through 11 or 1 through 8? Uh, in, I think, all of Paul's letters, he has doctrine and then practice. So he's just following his typical thing in 12.1 and 2. He says, therefore, brethren, in view of the mercies of God. So he's standing on a high mountain looking back over all that he said in you know, 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. In view of all of God's mercies, then. And then he gives us the ethical imperatives okay. in the rest of the book. And he does that in, in most of his other letters. Okay. Anything you want to come back to that we've skipped over by necessity? Uh, chapter 3, 21 and following is a really big moment. Well, it, yeah, the- it's ironic that in a thing on the Reformation that Greg and I, neither of us grabbed that little bit of the end of chapter 3. So basically, probably more important than the sermons you've just heard us preach. <laughs> if, uh, if you want to just go and look at three twenty-one to the end of that chapter and really get to know that, you'll understand what happened at the Reformation. Hmm. Yeah. Anything else? No? Nope. Okay. I, you know, you know, that's where you'll learn about the, the, uh, the nature of justification most clearly. Um, that's where Paul talks about justification being a declaration by God the judge that you are righteous. Uh, and then he lays out the, the ground on which that declaration is made. Now Mark and I have both hit on that. And if you've listened carefully, you'll, you'll pick that up. But that's really where Paul exposits that idea. You need the verdict from God that you're righteous. And the basis of that is nothing at all in you. It's what Christ has done for you. So what is the definition of justification? It's a a declaration by God of righteousness. Declaring righteous what is righteous. 
to be conformed to God's standard, to meet God's standard of, yeah. of a righteous life, okay. which we don't do, of course, right, right? in a hundred different ways. You know, we, we fail to reach that standard of righteousness. All have sinned and it, Paul says, fallen short of the glory of God. So we, we fail to meet it. Jesus, on the other hand, meets it in every imaginable way uh, in his life and then, and then in obedience to God, even to, as he says later, death on a cross. All right, I'm gonna stick with Greg on this one. Greg, uh, you've preached through the book of Romans on and off for a number of years. Uh, can you tell us something about the historical context for the book of Romans? What's in the background? What's the backstory? You know, Philippians, the Philippians sent a letter through uh, Epaphras and, and Paul's writing to, you know, encourage and, and update and all that. Or, or Philemon, we know the story there of Onesimus and you can, you can piece together a backstory. Right. It seems harder with Romans. What's the backstory? It does a little bit. I mean, Romans is, uh, uh, what, what's, what's unique and kind of interesting about it is that in most of Paul's other letters, he's writing back to churches that he knows really well because he himself planted them. In, in Romans, he's writing to a church that he, he doesn't know, he's never met before because the Roman church sprung up through the witness of, of other people, not Paul. Yeah. But what's going on is that, that Paul is, is making his way uh, from the eastern part of the Roman Empire to, to the western part. And he wants to go through Rome and eventually make his way all the way to Spain, which they would have thought of as the uttermost part of the earth, right? He's trying to, he's trying to fulfill the, the commission that Jesus gave the, gave the disciples at the beginning of Acts, go to the uttermost parts of the earth. So he says, that, that's Spain, right? That's where I'm going. Um, so he writes ahead to to the church in Rome, probably in about 57 AD is kind of what we think, maybe a little earlier or later, but probably about 57. Um, and, I, and he's doing two things. He's, he's A, introducing himself because he wants help from the church in Rome to get to Spain, financial and otherwise. And so he wants to create a connection with them doctrinally and every other way. I, I believe the same things you do. But, but second, he's also heard that there are problems in the church in Rome because what you had in the beginning was this, this church that was made up of, uh, of a mixture of Jews and Gentiles and then there was an emperor who uh, for several years banished all the Jews from Rome and then the next emperor allowed them several years to come back and so instead of a merely Gentile church you have one that's all of a sudden mixed up again with Jews and Gentiles and they're trying to figure out how to live and it's caused conflict. So, so Paul wants to solve all that and it's it's incredible the way he does that, the way he's gonna solve it is bring to bear the truth of the gospel to them. He's, he's not just gonna exhort them, he's not just gonna you know, press them ethically, he brings truth to bear, which I think is hugely instructive for us, even in our own churches. You know, a pastor shouldn't, when there's conflict in a church, you don't just stand up and say, you know, stop conflicting. You, know, you, you say, the gospel is what it is and you are who you are, Therefore, this is what ought to happen in your church. Okay, good. Mark, anything you want to add to the backstory of Romans? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he won't be this quiet for long. All right, so Romans 9, uh, what do you say to the person who says, Romans 9 is talking about nations and you know, peoples, uh, Jew, Gentile. It's not talking about individuals. You know, Jacob represents Israel, Esau represents non-Israel. I just point out that every example Paul gives in chapter nine are about individuals. Yeah. Well, in, uh, in nations rep, uh, are made up of 
individuals, right? There's no choosing of nations without the choosing of, of people. Well, it's also, there's, there's also the fact that logically, it, to say that he's, he's just talking about the election of Israel as a nation doesn't answer the problem. I mean, his, his question is, look, the nation of Israel, he knows they were elect, right? He knows that they were chosen by God as, as God's special elect nation. He knows that. He lays all that out in the first five verses. The problem is this elect nation of Israel is in the main not believing in Jesus. Most of them, most of this elect nation are rejecting Jesus. What's up with that, Paul? So if he's just simply asserting then in answer to that question, well, Israel as a nation is elect. The person who's asking the question goes, I know that. That's what we just said. You have to say something else. You know, it just doesn't answer the question. What answers the question is for him to say in verse six, look, not everybody who was a part of that elect nation is a part of the Israel of God. God. So you're, you're talking not just about the entire nation, but you're talking about down in verse 24, those who are called out from among that elect nation and from among the Gentiles. So just logically, it, it ends up not working. Yeah, good point. So someone wrote in the question that, uh, Greg, you said the gospel is a, an invitation that must be accepted. Uh, in Romans 9, seems to sound a different note or possibly even conflict. Uh, Mark, why don't you help us with that? What, what's, how do we piece this together, that the gospel is something that individuals need to respond to in faith. It's an invitation they must accept. And yet, God is sovereign. Uh, election is real. How do you piece those together? Is your bookstore going to be open when this is done? Mm-hmm. There's a little book in there by Orlando Sayer called Big God. Great. It's short, really well written, easy to read. And if you ask that question, that book will help you. Orlando Sayer, Big God. God. Uh, I would just say that evangelism, and the classic book on this is J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. The idea that God is sovereign in no way means he doesn't use means to accomplish his purposes. Uh, so uh, you, can just, you can almost name a book in the Bible and we can go and find examples of how God is sovereign and yet we are responsible. And one of the clearest places I go just to begin this conversation with people is Acts chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> when the believers are meeting together to pray and Peter and John have been told not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus and they meet and they pray. This is Acts 4 beginning at verse 24. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. We've got at least four responsible parties identified in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power, speaking to God, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Well, friends, if that seems a logical mess to you, I'm sorry, but that's just the way the Bible is. God is sovereign 
and he's sovereign over us. And we can sin, and God is sovereign even over that, which does not make God the author of sin. But here we have the most heinous sin ever enacted, the crucifixion of the incarnate Son of God, and yet even that is in God's mysterious plan. So I haven't answered your question at all, but I've just showed you that your question is a question of God that's just all through the Bible. And so what you have to do is begin assembling those things that we do know clearly from Scripture and kind of build out from there. So we know God is sovereign, and we know that we're responsible. Take both of those things and keep using them. Yeah, that's good. Greg, how, do, how does someone know whether they are elect? If you believe in Jesus. If you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Yeah. And if, so, if somebody's, when I was, when I was preaching this, this chapter, uh, Romans 9, a few weeks ago at 3rd Avenue, I just said, listen, I know there are a bunch of you here who are not, not Christians, and this is, a, this is an interesting week for you, to, for you to be here talking about some of the deep things of God. But I said, and don't, don't sit there just sort of waiting around to figure out if, you've, if you're elect. You know, if you've heard the gospel here today, because I make sure to preach the gospel in every, every sermon that I, that I preach, I make it clear how a person can be saved. And I said, if you, if you feel your heart falling toward Jesus in belief, believe in Jesus and repent of your sins. And then after you've done that, look backwards and realize with rejoicing, you know, God was the one that did that. You know, I, I only believed in him because he brought me to life spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, think of it, I think of it sometimes as, as what it would, would have been like to be, to be la- dead Lazarus in the tomb. You know, when, when the voice of God comes and, and calls you to life, you know, be- belief in Jesus is sort of like Lazarus taking his first breath. You know, you just, you're called to life first. And then because you've been called to life, it's, oh, you breathe, you know, you, you, have, you see the beauty of Christ in you and you breathe, you know. Good. Two things. Yes. Second Peter chapter one, verse 10. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. And if you wonder, well, how we're supposed to do that, you look back up and he said that in verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness into goodness, knowledge into knowledge, self-control into self-control, perseverance into perseverance, godliness into godliness, brotherly kindness into brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It's very similar to Paul at the end of Galatians where he talks about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. So that would be a, a biblical place to go to see if you're elect. Uh, the, the other thing I would say is that this, is a, this, this whole area of the last two questions is something that evangelical Christians have long pondered over. And sometimes I think the division between the Calvinists and the Arminians are not maybe quite as great as we, we make them out to be. I think often it's like we're all sitting at a table talking about what we were just singing about, and can it be, which is written by a Wesleyan Arminian, kind of, Charles Wesley, uh, and yet wonderfully Calvinistic, you know, in the sense that he recognizes the priority of grace, which I think just lets all, all you Calvinists know that our Arminian friends probably realize a lot more about grace than we give them credit for, you know, and so praise God for and can it be, and that good theology in there. Uh, and at the table where the Calvinists and the Arminians are sitting talking, 
the topic comes up, well, why am I saved? You know, or, or how, how can I be saved? How can I be a Christian? And, and we all rehearse God, man, Christ's response. And we all agree on it. So we're all Christians. And so the Arminian says, well, so how, how can somebody be saved? And, you know, Greg is sitting there and he says, well, repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And the Arminians go, yeah, that, that is right. And, and then the two Arminians are satisfied and they get up and leave. The two Calvinists sit there and keep going, but why did I believe? Why, why did I repent? You know, Calvinists are more introverted and introspective and a little glum. Why? So, you know, we just sit there and keep pondering on it philosophically and biblically. So we're just asking further questions that often our Arminian friends just haven't engaged with as deeply. All right, so maybe we'll come back to Romans, but you, you mentioned this word Calvinist. Uh, that brings us to the Reformation. Why, why is a certain set of beliefs Calvinistic? Is that a helpful term? What's the history behind that? You, you have a history degree. You're a historian. Tell us. Well, we call something Calvinistic because it reminds us of the teaching of John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564 in Geneva. Uh, mainly in Geneva, those from Noyon in France. He was uh, brought up to be a Roman Catholic lawyer, but was converted. We don't know when exactly. We think sometime when he was in his 20s in Paris in college. And he was very sharp, and he put that sharpness on the Bible. And he became a wonderful student of Scripture and therefore a teacher of Scripture. And he was very clear, though he was not alone. This was the, the doctrines that we associate with the word Calvinism are just the doctrines that all the most all the Protestants were teaching, but apparently Paul too. Certainly Paul, yeah. um, but in conversation and in writing and in debate, even in his own lifetime, his name began to be associated with these doctrines, um, and that was a tribute, I think, to the the volume that he wrote and the clarity with which he wrote. The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Well, the Institutes, yes, uh, but I would say probably more than that is commentaries. Mm, okay. Yeah, and then lots of occasional pieces that ended up, you know, like nine Marx books at the time, you know, that ended up addressing particular situations in churches, what you should do. Mm -hmm. um, his, his pen was like the nine Marx website. I mean, he just churned out book after book. Should you go attend mass? Should you believe in soul sleep? How should you order the church? Should you catechize your children? He doesn't just answer that like I would in two sentences. He writes a book about each of these things. Mm. You know, he'll get a question and he'll write a book. Yeah. And he, these things go out all <clears throat> over Europe. And uh, it's incredibly useful and it, it really stamped the movement. But many others at the time, Martin Bootser, just before him, and uh, Ulrich, I mean, um, um, uh, Heinrich Bullinger, just after him, and John Knox in Scotland, many others taught all the same things. It's just his name was treated sort of preeminently at the time and has continued to be. Okay. Good. Greg, should uh, everyday Christians care about church history? Should they care specifically about the Reformation? Why, why does this matter? Oh, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I have an undergraduate history degree that I spent looking at church history, but it's, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a long time since I've, since I've given much attention to to, to the details of the, the dates and the places and all the rest of it. But, but those, those people in the 500 years ago 
we're dealing so carefully with theological and biblical questions that, that reading their material, it, it just works like a, it just works like a mind sweeper for error in your, in your own understanding. You know, they'll raise questions that you didn't even know you were wrong about and, and fix them in your mind. And it's extraordinary. I mean, I remember, I remember reading John Calvin in the institutes. This was in seminary on the Trinity and realizing that the way I typically talked about the Trinity was just utter heresy. I mean, I, I immediately agreed with Calvin, right? Because, I, because I'm a Trinitarian, but I just realized that my language was just utterly wrong and I didn't even know it. So, and there are a hundred examples of that. So, interesting. yeah. Okay. There's also nothing new under the sun in terms of error. You know, Pelagianism exists in our day and, uh, you know, Roman Catholic misunderstanding of the gospel un- exists in our day and it, it, it all swings back around and Christians have been dealing with these things for a very long time. Mark, any thought on everyday Christians and how they think of church history? I mean, I just love biographies. Yeah, so helpful. They get so much. (laughs) I don't think you meant that ironically, did you? They they are helpful. They are helpful. (laughs) Yes, they're they're helpful because they do story and theology and experience uh, in history all at the same time. that's a great way of doing history or, or learning history and benefiting from the saints of old. Um, okay, let's... So basically, any biography that Banner of Truth publishes will bless your soul. Mm-hmm. Just get any biography that Banner of Truth publishes, even if it's one of Ian Murray's with five or six guys in it, you've never heard of any of them, it doesn't matter. Ian is going to make that bless your soul. He's just good at that. Just go read about them. You'll learn about them. Praise God for it. John Payton's biography, his autobiography... Missionary to the South Pacific Islands, the 1830s, 40s, 50s. Extraordinary story. I mean, just watch people run the race before us and learn. Mm, That's good. All right, so let's just tick through some issues of the Reformation. What did the Reformation accomplish? What what did it work through? What did it change? Uh, Justification, is, is that the top of the list? Other issues. Well, I mean, that, people have often referred to the, the material and the formal principle of the Reformation, and that's the material principle, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, salvation. The formal principle, which one might say is logically prior, is what is your authority for determining the material principle? And that would be the authority of Scripture alone is sufficient. That Jesus, in fact, so in a crowd this large in New Mexico, there have to be Roman Catholics here. And I would just say with all, all due respect, I don't think the disciples who first confess Jesus as the Messiah and then Jesus calls out Peter and says, you're the rock and I'm going to build my church on you and a confession like yours. There's no way Peter understood that means, hey, I'm the Pope. There's just, there's just no way. There's no way the other disciples understood that. Peter doesn't act like that. He doesn't act like that when he denies Jesus. He, he doesn't act like that in the book of Acts. The other disciples don't treat him like that. In Galatians, when Paul rebukes him, he's not treated like that. So, First Peter 5, he calls himself a fellow elder. Fellow elder. So, um, so I, I think that the, the understanding of the church and the gospel um, does not come fundamentally from the church and the tradition of the church, which is what Rome asserts. Uh, it comes from God's self-revelation in Scripture. 
And the story I always tell, do you want me to take time to tell a story? Sure. The story I always tell to illustrate this is when I was at a think tank in D.C. right after I'd gotten there. And it was the uh, 500th anniversary of the birth of William Tyndale, and David Daniel had just published a great biography. You want a good biography? It's published by Yale University Press. David Daniel, William Tyndale, awesome biography. And this guy in this think tank meeting had just read it and had written a review of it in the local newspaper. Well, I was just about to fly to London to give a paper on it, on Tyndale, and had just read the book. And so it gave me something to talk about at this think tank. And so I said, so, Robert, what would you think of the, the book? He said, oh, it was, it was pretty good. He said, except, you know, it had that typical Protestant squint. My friend was Roman Catholic, and he knew I was a Southern Baptist pastor. Uh, and so when he said that, you know, I thought, oh, what am I supposed to do? I mean, it's his think tank. You know, I'm polite. I'm standing here holding my Diet Coke, you know. And do I, you know, I said, Robert, what do you mean by that typical Protestant squint? And he said, well, it participates in the myth that the church, uh, that the Bible made the church. We all know the church made the Bible. (laughs) So, you know, I've got like two other innocent people standing by. (laughs) And I'm just thinking, you know, what, what to do. But it's like I'm a werewolf and the moon has just come up. You know. So I, I literally did, the next words out of my mouth were, Rob, that's ridiculous. God's people have never made God's word. God's word has always made God's people. From Genesis 1, when God spoke and the worlds were created, to Genesis 12, when God's promise comes to Abram and he's created as his people because of that, to Exodus 20, when the Ten Commandments are given, to the great vision in Ezekiel of the vision of the valley of the dry bones, when his word comes out and his people are brought to life, to supremely the coming of the incarnate Son of God. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing the message of Christ. I said, Rob, God's people have never made God's word. God's word has always made God's people. I really did say all that. And... Um, yeah, then we changed the conversation to another topic. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, that's just a good summary of, of a difference between evangelicals and Roman Catholics. We, we really think something very differently about the Bible and about the church. Yeah. And so, it was important then and it's still important now. So authority, scripture, from that came justification. Uh, is assurance related to any of this? Well, yes. I mean, the the... the, the Reformers and the Puritans referred to regularly in their rhetoric, the damnable doctrine of doubt. That was their phrase. That's how they dismissed the way the Roman Catholic Church talked of salvation. The Roman Catholic Church officially taught, and by their current catechism still teaches, that it is errant presumption for an individual to be confident that they will go to heaven when they die because they don't know they won't commit a mortal sin. And even if they don't commit any mortal sins, they have other sins to work off in purgatory. The only people we can know are in heaven are those the church has told us that by canonizing them. Those are the saints. Um, So when you tell a Roman Catholic friend that you know you're saved, your Roman Catholic friend in all innocence, here's a very prideful statement. They hear you saying that you think you're perfect, and it's it's an offensive statement. Of course, the evangelical means a very humble, you know, common statement that, 
I trust in Christ and I trust him to save me, yeah. you know. But um, it, it sounds very different in the Roman Catholic system. And that shows how big the divide is. Mm. And assurance then was one of the doctrines that was worked out in because this idea, and, and friends, I mean, this is precious, that you can go to sleep tonight knowing that you are okay with God. There wasn't a person in Europe in 1500 who could do that, at least not according to the church, what the church taught. That would have been heretical pride. So when this gospel first started being declared of the free grace of God in Christ, it was no way for Presbyterians and Catholics to fight. It was, oh my goodness, I can know that God loves me and that I will spend forever with him. I, I don't die in some kind of doubt, fearing this horrible century after millennium, after 10,000 years in purgatory to be purged and cleansed and, and then come to paradise. But I actually can die with the same confidence a thief on the cross or Paul in Philippians has that today I will be with Christ in paradise. I can know that. Yes. Oh, friends, there's a reason the Protestant Reformation lit up Europe. Amen. And then the transformation, the, ch the changes really, I mean, dominoes fell one after another. Uh, marriage, um, vocation. Greg, you've written a book on work. We, we hear something called the Protestant work ethic today. Uh, talk to us about how the Reformation changed a view of work. Yeah, well, what is that word, it's, vocation? It's not, it's not at all unrelated to what, to what Mark was just describing there. I mean, I mean, hearing that, it's no wonder that for Luther and the, the other reformers, the doctrine of justification by faith alone was so precious, right? Because as long as, as long as justification was by faith, plus some things that I do, there's great doubt about whether the things that I do are gonna be enough to, to get me over the finish line. But, but when they realized from scripture that no, 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 you know, the declaration by God that you are righteous is, is by faith alone in what Jesus has done for you. Well, it, it, it changed everything, just like you were saying. And that, and that, was, true of, that was true of vocation. It's true of, it's true of the way we think about work. Um, it's not uncommon, I think, for, for people to think that, that part of what they'll hold up in front of God on the last day as, as kind of the reason why they should be justified is, is what they did through the 80,000 hours or so that they spent in the workplace. And, and so it puts a certain amount of pressure on, on what we do in the workplace uh, that really shouldn't be there. I mean, we, we want our work to, I think, I think we want our work to, uh, uh, to, to, to change the world or to um, be something that is significant in a way that, that makes the world sit up and take notice when, when actually, if, if I'm saved by, by Christ alone and faith in him, then everything that I need to be, a, to, to be a complete person is in Christ's hand in heaven. So I don't, I don't have to find significance in what I do at work. I don't have to find the meaning in my life according to how my work is going from one minute to the next or whether my professional stock is up or or down. Uh, I don't have to find reward in my work finally because, because all of that is secure in, in heaven. My identity, my reward, my, you know, my everything is secure yeah. in him all of a sudden. And that doesn't lead to laziness. 
And oh, indifference, no. it leads to gospel energized yeah, exactly. service. You know, it's, it's like Paul said in a couple of places, Philippians and Col- Colossians 3, Philippians 6, I think it is. He says, everything that you do, you do it as for the Lord and not for men. In other words, in other words far more important than the, than the mechanics of what your job entails is the fact that you are doing that job for the king. You, you have been deployed by the king to be in that place for this season of your of your life. If you want to use the word calling for that, that's, that's okay. I don't particularly like the word calling in this, in this context, but, but you've been deployed by the king to be there. And that's not an accident. He has a, a reason for putting you there. And so you engage that work as a servant of the king and you do it with excellence as long as the Lord has you deployed in that place. But you don't, you don't make an idol of it either. You don't, you don't look for your ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction in that job because you're, 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 your ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction is with the king. So, so you keep that in mind and it, it literally will cut the, the root of both idolatry and idleness in, in your job. So Mark, where was the gospel before the Reformation? Do, do, do it go from Paul to dark ages to Luther? Kind of, but not exactly. God alone knows the answer to that. Um, the, 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 the dark ages, and let me just say, as somebody who majored in medieval history, we all lamented that there were people who called them the dark ages. <laughs> you are how every medieval history class began. <laughs> really looking down on someone like you. <laughs> calling these splendid centuries yes. full of amazing action the dark ages. Well, you couldn't, you, I didn't do air quotes, but I meant to. Okay. Some people say. Virtual air quotes. Don't get me started. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's call them the medieval period, early in Lent. Okay. Medieval between the ages. Right. Got it. Um, you know, there are amazingly, uh, Gottschalk has some really good statements. Robert Grosteste has some really good statements. John Wycliffe, John Huss. So, no, there's actually a lot that goes on between uh, Paul, and let's roll that on up to Augustine in, in the fourth and fifth century. There's a lot that goes on uh, that's really very good, but there's a lot that's mixed. I mean, I mentioned Augustine, even Augustine. Some people have said the Reformation was Augustine's ecclesiology versus Augustine's soteriology. That is, it was Augustine's doctrine of the church, fairly Roman Catholic, Versus his doctrine of salvation and grace, very evangelical. Uh, and the inconsistencies in Augustine's own thought were being hammered out in the Reformation. I think that's, that's a good way to summarize it. So I think what happens at the Reformation is not that ideas are thought for the first time at all. I mean, not only do I mean the typical Protestant point by that, that these are all in the Bible, which they are. But no, I mean even historically. No, you, you can find almost anything, Luther or Calvin or any of them say, and you can find in many different centuries people saying these things, mm-hmm. uh, but not all together in the same way with the clarity that they're given to in the early 1500s. Yeah, okay, good. If you're curious about that, Marvin Anderson wrote a book called Battle for the Gospel, a little thin book that Baker published back in the 1970s that tells you about Italian bishops in the 1400s who believed in justification by faith alone. Because the Roman Catholic Church, as we know it, wasn't really founded until the response to the Reformation. 
It's in the 1560s at the Council of Trent that Rome looks at Luther's gospel and says, you go to hell if you believe that. Uh, before they make that statement, you can, there's lots of stuff you can believe. Roman, you know, people who were in fellowship with the Bishop of Rome had varying opinions on all kinds of matters. And uh, there were many among them who were what we would understand to be evangelical in their, or some that we have evidence of who were evangelical in their understanding of the gospel. So when, when we go before the Council of Trent, that thing going on in Europe, it's our church. It's as much ours as theirs. Uh, but it was divided by their rejection of Luther's clear, and, and Calvin's and others, clear exposition of the gospel. When, when the Roman church officially rejected that, it became schismatic, it became heretical, it became a very large cult, I would say. Greg, is the Reformation still ongoing, and do we keep reforming? Yeah, one of the, one of the great watch cries of the, Re, of the Reformation was, was the Latin phrase, Semper Reformanda, all, always reforming according to the Word of God. So um, it, it's a new work every generation. Like I said, there's nothing new under the sun, and so the, the same errors, the same temptations of the human heart to want to contribute to our salvation are going to be there in every single generation. I, I mean, the, uh, the, the preachers that preached to me as a child and the teachers that taught me had to drive that out of my heart. Um, I have to drive it out of my children's heart. They're going to have to drive it out of their children's heart. Um, so so it's, a, it's a constantly moving thing to drive that kind of pride out of us. Well, and, and even more parallel historically to the Reformation, honestly, the work that Ryan and, and myself and Greg are involved in with the Gospel Coalition, Nine Marks, Simeon Trust, these are standard Protestant Reformation things. None of these things do we have to do to be the pastor of our local churches. But look at us, here we are, local church pastors, in another place in the country, talking about the Book of Romans. Why would we be doing that? Well, friends, it's the same things that compelled Calvin to write all those books, and Luther to do those things. It's just... We, there is something beyond our local church that we care about, the evangelization of our nation and the world. And part of what that means is making the gospel itself clear, which is why we are called evangelicals, the evangel, the gospel, which is why we are called Protestant, protestare, to bear witness. Uh, that's what we're doing. And I would say that even if a lot of evangelical pastors don't give much time to that outside of their local church, when you see guys like Greg or myself or Ryan who are doing that with Simeon Trust, Nine Marks, Gospel Coalition, that's exactly the same kind of thing. We are continuing that work of reformation. Hmm. And isn't it important with that phrase, always reforming, to have the rest of it according to Scripture, which you mentioned, yeah, Greg, right. because the goal is not just to keep changing. That's right. Uh, that's what liberalism has done. That's right. The, the work of reformation is not the work of, of changing. It's the work of conforming yeah, to what the yeah. word of God says. Good. So are there no regenerate saved Christians? That's all redundant on purpose. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church today? Greg? Well, I think, I think probably there are. I mean, I mean, what, there are two billion Catholics in the, in the world, and I think, I think probably there are. I, we talked about this a little bit at a, a luncheon yesterday with, with a group of pastors, but I, there was a, when I was in college, there was a, 
a fellow who was discipling me who, who answered that question for me in a way that I've remembered ever since. And he, he just said, as I was pressing that question on him, he said, he said yes, Greg, there, 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 there probably are people who are members of the Roman Catholic Church and faithful attenders and all the rest who are saved. But given everything we've, we've been saying about the Roman Catholic understanding articulated by Trent about justification by faith alone and, and faith in Christ, given all that, if those people who are members of Roman Catholic churches are saved, they are saved in spite of the teaching of their church, not because of it. And that's just a hugely significant distinction to make. So, so that would mean that if I ran into one of those people and had a conversation with him and realized that we're believing in Jesus in the same way, faith alone in Christ, my encouragement to them would be to find a church where that's gonna be pressed on them officially in every other way uh, and, and not be working against them Sunday after Sunday. I've actually had a group of Roman Catholic businessmen in Indianapolis ask if I would come and do an evangelistic crusade. Wow. I, I declined it, but um, yeah. And it's because they understand themselves to understand the same gospel that I preach. Now, their priests should not be happy with that. Right. Yeah. yeah they're bad, bad Roman but Catholics. Hey, yeah, but there's some happy inconsistencies in this world. In, in, yeah, that's right. So there are Catholics who believe uh, the gospel and uh, are currently in the Roman Catholic Church. There are also Protestants who think we basically have agreement now. We, we've come to enough uh, clarity. We can agree that justification is by faith. We can believe that we're saved by grace. Uh, some people say the Reformation's over. Mark, when someone says the Reformation's over, what do they mean by that, number one? And number two, what do you say in response? They're probably reflecting uh, that we're in a very secular age, and they're noticing how, they're, if they're an evangelical Protestant saying this, they're noticing how much they have in common with their Roman Catholic friends uh, on a social issue like abortion, or maybe traditional family. Uh, maybe that the Bible's true, that Jesus died for their sins, uh, that you should go to church, that you should respect your parents, not lie. There's so much we have in common, to believe in the Trinity. Um, <clears throat> but what they're not taking sufficient account of is the fact that all of the differences that stood between the Roman Catholic organization in 1567 and Protestant evangelical believers in Europe are still there, all of them. So if, if they have Roman Catholic friends and their Roman Catholic friends are saying, I believe in salvation by faith. I believe in salvation uh, by grace. Uh, I, I believe in salvation you know, through Jesus. Well, the Roman Catholic Church has always taught that. We've never had a debate about Jesus or grace or faith. The Reformation was all over the word only. That's the Reformation. Okay. And a lot of Protestants just don't under, you know, let's be honest, a, a lot of people don't read today. They read, you know, two second things on the internet, but, you know, sustained argument is just beyond people. And that means we're not going to understand history very well, and we won't understand our own history, and we won't understand what the conversation was with the Church of Rome. And the conversation was never do we trust in Christ for salvation by grace? Because Thomas Aquinas would teach us clearly that we trust in salvation, that we trust in Jesus for salvation by grace. But he would have very particular ways he would define that, 
which would include necessarily the sacraments of the church, obedience to the church, our cooperation with grace in such a way that it is in and of itself meritorious. So just things vastly different than what we mean by faith alone, only in Christ, by grace only. Those alones, those onlys, that's where the whole conversation is. And Rome has not moved one bit on that. So not Trent, not the Council of Trent, not Vatican II. Well, okay, Vatican II, I know you're going to bring in that. Rome has never disowned Vatican, has never disowned Trent, which was a council of the church from 1546 to 1564 or 67. They had six meetings in this city, in a German-speaking city in Central Europe, and it codified the official response to the Protestant Reformation, condemning the Protestant Reformation. Someone could just Google Canons of Trent and get the, there it is. the, the, the headlines. Right? Canon, C-A-N. Yeah. ONS. Otherwise, you'll get some old rusty things in a town park in Trent. You know, it's not C A N N O N S, like boom, boom. It's like C A N O N S, like measure or rule. Um, I don't remember what I was saying. You know? Sorry. Oh, Vatican, Vatican II. Do you really want to go to Vatican II? You, you said they haven't changed a thing. Okay, well, about these particular this co- is they, the they've never taken They've never taken back their anathemas. Now, in Vatican II, uh, Rome became unutterably worse because Rome basically became like Protestant liberalism. They started talking about anonymous Christians, people who don't even believe in God being saved. So they went from being wrongly and perversely exclusive to being like, you know, God may save just everybody. Uh, Read the encyclical Lumen, Lumen Gentium, Light to the Nations, and it's just, it's very sad. Now, fortunately, most people don't understand that. They just know all of a sudden the mass stopped being Latin and all of a sudden it was in English or Spanish. You know, and, and that, I think that was a good change. But um, they don't understand the theology that was going on underneath it, which was a terribly, I would say, secular, anti-Christian philosophy, which is much more like liberals in the Unitarian church or the illiberal uh, Episcopal Church or PCUSA or, yeah, it's very little like historic Christianity. So I would say that they had a change and now that change will make room for friends like my evangelical Roman Catholic businessmen in Indianapolis. You know, there's a lot more space in the church in that sense, but even then this, this terrible monstrosity has not disowned what it said in the Council of Trent. Because it would look at the statements of the Council of Trent like you and I would look at the Bible. They would think the Holy Spirit has moved unerringly in councils. So all we can do is add to it. Yes, even things that to our minds would be clearly contradictory. They can add to it, but they can never take back. Yeah. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's mixed up and sad. Okay. Yeah. I, I, the, only thing, the only thing I would even begin to add to all that is just that this is, it's really important to realize that this is not just an academic discussion between bishops and pastors, right? It, it's, there, there's a huge spiritual difference between saying on the one hand, I am saved, if I am saved at all, by some combination of Jesus's work and my work. And therefore, though Jesus may, may deserve 90% of the glory, even 99.9, I deserve one clap. And on the other hand, saying, I am saved solely by the alien righteousness 
of Jesus, the outside work of him, and he deserves all the glory. And, and that'll have huge implications in your, in your life and everything from the way you, you pray to the way you think about yourself, to the way you worship, to the way you interact with others, to the way you, to your assurance of self. It, it's just, it's everything. So let me imagine someone out there is hearing this right now and they're thinking, but I struggle with, self, uh, with assurance. Sometimes I trust my own righteousness. I believe in a grace alone, faith alone gospel, but sometimes I do trust my own righteousness. Am I lost? Uh, you may it's be, a you may be, but I would also say that we as Christians are sinners. Whether we understand that from Galatians 5 or Romans 7, it's the case. You know, we are sinners, even as Christians. And therefore, it's not surprising that you in your sin would think like a Roman Catholic on salvation, like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. I think naturally we all want to justify ourselves in some degree. And that's what brings thoughts of doubts of our salvation based on what we do. Because as, as Greg and I have both been at pains to show in, in the book of Romans, salvation comes to us because of Christ alone, because of what he has done. We, we trust him. We receive his gift of salvation. It's not based on anything in us. So yes, true Christians can question their salvation. They can lack assurance of salvation. But it is a normal thing for those who are truly trusting in Christ to enjoy periods of great personal assurance of their salvation. And the traditional teachings of the Roman Catholic Church forbid and even anathematize that teaching. And there's a difference between what we confess and what we sort of lapse into, right? So I, my confession is a grace alone, faith alone gospel, right. even though sometimes I do lean on my, you know, piddly right. bits it's of like righteousness. Jeremiah says the heart is wicked beyond all understanding and it's gonna betray you over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, but when you see your heart doing that, you, 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 you turn and repent yeah. and return to what you would confess. Yeah. All right, so what about the goal of unity? If the Reformation was a split from Rome and Jesus talked about his church being unified and all that, uh, there was the charge of schism, right? The, 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 maybe the biggest critique that Rome had of Protestants was you're dividing what Jesus said should be united. What's the response to that? Um, I think that when Jesus prays for the unity of the, his, his body of his followers in John 17, he's praying a prayer that would be and has been and will continue to be answered. Um, you know, we were warned at the Reformation that if you split the church, you will, you will fall into a thousand factions. You, you will divide and divide and divide. And I think we've had 500 years of Protestant history now to show that in fact, that is simply not the case at all. Uh, here in this room, I've talked to Presbyterians, Bible Church, Anglican, Baptist, non-denominational. There's no bishop sitting around in a pointy hat in Italy somewhere who tells us we have to be here together. You know what's going on? We perceive the same gospel truths. So the Anglican pastor in Uganda and the Church of Scotland dear evangelical woman on a bus in Edinburgh and the Hispanic pastor of a church here in town and the missionary in the Philippines and the, the Hindu convert in the south of India, when they sit and share the gospel with someone on the bus, they all tell them that they should turn from their sins and trust in Christ for salvation. 
There's no central bishop that's making them say that. It's because, as Greg said, this is what we see when we read the Bible. So once you understand the Bible is true and it's sufficient and you read it, the basic message of the gospel comes out clearly. There are all kinds of things we can have questions and disagree about. But those disagreements we have are secondary compared to our primary agreement on the gospel. And we need no external authority or organization to patrol and enforce, let alone to create such unity. God's Holy Spirit creates that unity in regenerating us. We know the gospel that saved us. We read it in his word. And that's what we share all, the way, all around the world. And we've been doing that for 500 years. And we're going to keep doing that until Jesus comes back. Yeah. Now, <laughs> praise God. The fact that confuses our Roman Catholic friends who understand that unity must be visible and organizational, I, I get that. The fact that we send our missionary dollars to 10,000 different organizations confuses them. Uh, but that's because we've, we've never thought the New Testament has a, a worldwide visible organization that we're supposed to participate in. It's not there in the teaching of the New Testament. It's just not there. So what we participate in is the real unity of the Holy Spirit, which is a wonderful unity. That's why we are together for the gospel. Amen. Well, what you should start your, a conference yeah. <laughs> together for the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> what, what you're talking about there again is the is is what you call the formal principle of the Reformation, yeah, which which I mean this may sound sadly naive to an eminent historian like you, but it, hey man, you I'm were an undergraduate kidding. history major. <laughs> I know <At> Yale. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm talking about. But everything you were saying there makes it it makes me think that there's actually legitimate question about who were the schismatics in the Reformation. It was the I mean, people who the, rejected the gospel. If the faith this is, what is Calvin maintained. That's right. If the faith is based on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that yeah. is the New Testament and the Old Testament, yeah. then it would be those who over a thousand years through the medieval period <laughs> sl slowly schismed until they formalized it and said, yes, we did in fact do this. Precisely. I grant you an honorary degree. <laughs> I think our work is done here, Ryan. I mean, that's pretty much <laughs> that's the point of this whole thing. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for inviting Greg. No, not, not yet, not yet. So I have a pastoral burden and concern that I, I want you guys to address. Uh, I've known people who are Protestant and leave the faith and become Roman Catholic. They really do come to confess a different gospel. Um, I'm sure you both have encountered people like that in your churches or friends? Why do they, why are they drawn to Rome? What do you say to them besides just, come on, please keep believing the same gospel we find in scripture? What's the allure that you found? Well, in the, in the cases that I've been, that I've been most familiar with, it's, it's almost always a, it's almost always a plea for for authority, for someone to be able to come in and say, you know, this is the truth. So, so the friends that I've had, they, they've, been, they've been unsettled by the fact that different people can look at different passages of scripture, whether on, on big issues or little ones, and disagree about it. And so there's a, great, there's a great desire for someone like a pope to be able to come in and just say, this is the truth, now stop arguing about it. Yeah. Um, which I which I think is a which I think is a sad a sad thing. I, I just 
Because in my experience, that some of the greatest, some of the greatest spiritual fruit that I find in the Bible comes from wrestling with other people about precisely what it means. So, so I, I, I find it enormously fruitful that, you know, for example, I mean, even, even this weekend that Mark and I can have conversation together about exactly what Romans 7 is saying. There's fruit that, that pops up out of that disagreement. And if there were somebody who were sort of sitting on top of us saying, you know, this is the solution and no one is to talk about it anymore, yeah. you'd lose a lot of that fruit. So it, it's, a sad, it's a sad sort of plea for an, an end to conversation in some ways. Yeah, you know, first of all, I think the examples of this are so few in number, absolutely and certainly in percentages. There are very few Protestants, for reason other than marrying a Roman Catholic, who become Roman Catholic. In fact, there are so few newspaper articles get written when it happens. But may I just seize the steering wheel for a moment? Of course. Behold, if you have a Roman Catholic background, and are now a member of or attending an evangelical Protestant church, please stand. Yeah. Thanks. Please be seated. I thought it'd be more than that. Now, if you go to a, Protestant, a Roman Catholic church and you ask how many people here have a Protestant background, oh, you could find that many. I, I doubt it. So in our churches, we're filled with people in our eldership, on my own pastoral staff, John Joseph, you know, with people who have Roman Catholic background. Yeah. Who, so that's the great traffic statistically. Mm-hmm. The only way the Roman Catholic church in America is not in free fall statistically is because of Hispanic immigration to the United States. It's the only reason the Roman Catholic church is not an absolute statistical free fall. Okay. And they are having to close churches all over the place. And it is not just because of lawsuits about priests abusing children. It is because of a lack of people going to Roman Catholic churches. So I, I want to first just put it in perspective. Theologically, I agree with Greg. It, it's, it's sad when somebody leaves a church that teaches the gospel and goes to a church that denies the gospel. And in our own local church, if that happens, we will excommunicate them. They know that. And in 24 years, that's happened rarely, maybe once or twice. So it just, it doesn't happen really much in my experience at all. Okay. Um, I have a fascination with those times though. And so I, I literally read biographies of people who become Roman Catholic. And I would drop here almost always, in my experience, in my reading, it is always a search for authority. It is always like, I'm tired, I'm confused. I just want somebody to tell me what is right here because I'm just concerned that Protestants just, there's just too many arguments and I'm not bright enough. I don't know enough. I just, I, I'm, I'm busy in my job. I'm busy with my family. I'm busy with other things. Well, some, I want to, this is a large and old looking building. I want to step in here and I just want to trust these people. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, if that's you, make sure you don't study any history because the Roman Catholic church has just as many questions and divisions and confusions and changes as ever Protestantism does. And if you'll just study history a little bit more, you'll see their claim to be semper adem, always the same, is simply not true. Well, there was that time in the, what, 15th century when they had three popes yeah. in the Great yeah. Schism. Three, That's right. three duly elected popes. 1415, they had to call a council at the city of Constance just to sort that yeah. out. Yeah. All right, so why don't we end with this? Uh, either of you, a favorite story from the Reformation?
I don't have any stories. What's your favorite story? <laughs> it was your idea to have this conference. Uh, well, I, probably the most famous is, you know, Luther's Here I Stand um, before he's excommunicated. Um, it, now, if somebody doesn't know that story, what, was he on the bus that was crowded? I mean, what? <laughs> That's the Rosa Parks story, yeah. Uh, no, so he, he, um, he's on trial. Uh, he's asked to um, denounce what he's written. Why is he on trial? He's on trial for, for heresy. Um, Yikes, what was he teaching? <laughs> similar stuff that, that to what you taught this weekend <laughs> from Romans and other things. He taught against uh, indulgences. And What's an indulgence? No, come on. <laughs> Is that the idea that if I've sinned, I can pay money and the Roman Catholic Church will give me forgiveness? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Do they still teach that? Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't Francis, the current pope, a really nice guy? We're, we're kind of getting off track. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a current pope. I was talking about here I stand, Martin Luther. So he, we think of Martin Luther as this bold, courageous guy. And, uh, and he was asked to, to renounce his, his writings. Um, and he actually asked for a, a night to think about it and to pray about it. Um, and it seems like he really wrestled with the Lord and wrestled with himself. And then he gave his famous speech that you know, to go against conscience is neither safe nor wise. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. Uh, that's probably the most famous story of the Reformation. That's a good that's one. The that's one, a man. great one. Well, yeah, look at awesome the time. Man. Look at the time. Okay. We really are out of time, actually, so thank you guys. Let's, let's thank these guys for their work with us this weekend. All right. Well, if you're uh, from a neighboring church... Um, we're glad you've been with us for this conference weekend, and we wish you a blessed Lord's Day with your congregation tomorrow morning. If you're visiting from out of town or you currently don't have a church home, uh, Mark Dever will be preaching for us in two services tomorrow, 9 o'clock in 1045, and uh, we'll be in some ways continuing with this as Mark preaches from Romans 12. Um, so we're going to close this out by asking my friend Sean Sloan from Heritage Christian Fellowship to come on up here. And he's going to close in a kind of a prayer of application for about some of the themes we've talked about uh, throughout this, this weekend. Sean, thanks for praying for us. Thanks for your fellowship in the gospel, man. Oh, man, thanks for the conference and uh, thanks for uh, serving us. That too. Let's pray. <laughs> Our Father, we are so grateful for your kindness and your love to us and our Lord Jesus Christ. We do praise you and thank you for his precious blood that washes away our sins. And for his perfect life which has justified us before you. What an awesome and wonderful salvation he has worked for us who believe. Our Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being here at Claris 2017. 
with all of these precious saints to, to sit under your word and to be refreshed again. We thank you for your servants, Mark and Greg, and for their sacrifice to be here with us. We thank you for this church and all her dear saints who have served us so well in putting on this great conference. Now, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us to worship you faithfully as we apply what we have heard. Grant us to be unashamed of the gospel. And Lord, keep us from hypocrisy, we pray. Grant us faith in believing in Christ alone for our righteousness before you. And Lord, sanctify us completely by your Holy Spirit as we continue to remember the great salvation and love that you have showered us with in Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for these great and precious promises from Romans. And we ask that you write it on our hearts and minds and cause us to treasure these sweet words. Now, our Lord, to you, the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.